0: drugs and sports. New challenges, new testing. You're listening to ReachMD, XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to our ReachMD special series exploring sports medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me is Dr. Don Catlin, Chief Executive of Anti-Doping Research in Los Angeles, California. Dr. Catlin is former head of the UCLA Olympic Analytical Lab's and has written and lectured extensively on the subject of testing for performance-enhancing drugs. He has supervised the world's most respected facilities for analyzing biological samples from athletes. Today, we're going to be talking about drugs in sports, new challenges, and new testing. Don Catlin, thanks for being with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your medical background and what led you into this field?
1: Sure. I went to University of Rochester Medical School and to UCLA for internship and on through medical residency chief resident and then on to the Army, Walter Reed, and then back to UCLA where I took a position as a junior assistant professor of medicine and then a couple years later in walked a representative from the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, and he said that they had decided that I should be the head of a lab to be developed at UCLA that would test athletes for drugs when the Olympics came in three years, which would be 1984. And they sort of picked on me because I had a little bit of past history in the military of knowing something about drugs and pharmacology, but not a great deal. And I looked at the list of drugs that they wanted me to detect. And I said, well, gosh, you know, I don't really know all of these drugs, we don't use them in internal medicine unless you're in a certain specialty. Anabolic androgenic steroids are just not that common unless you're in renal disease, and I wasn't. So I said, go away, sort of like that. But when they came back a month or two later, they explained to me and to my and chairman that there would be a substantial grant to UCLA to make this whole thing work. And as you know, department chairmen like grants. And the next thing we knew, we had a $2 million grant to develop a remarkable facility at UCLA and take three years to do it, and then do the games in the summer of 84 and live happily ever after.
0: Had there been the equivalent of such a laboratory in the United States before?
1: No, there was no such thing. And in fact, if if you can imagine this, People in the United States really didn't know anything about drugs in sport.
0: But the people in
1: Europe did know, and in London and in Germany, and it was the sport leaders there who felt that the U.S. athletes were all on drugs, of course, that were insisting that there be a lab. And that's when the IOC said, there shall be a lab. And when the IOC speaks, you you jump.
0: And since that time, there have been lab or labs for all the Olympics, is that correct?
1: Yeah, that started a movement, which now, when I started, it was three labs in the world, and now there's 33. So the movement really took off in the beginning in the
0: 90s. Most of us are familiar with or at least have heard about anabolic androgenic steroids, and we know that those are common, and we've heard of EPO. What I'm wondering is, are there different sets of drugs that different programs are interested in testing? You, know, you talked about the Olympic program, but I also know you've been involved in testing for major league sports. Is there a specific touchstone that you must do these, or does every sport have kind of a different wrinkle on it?
1: The IOC WADA, that's the World Anti-Doping Agency, has a menu of banned substances, and they include anabolic steroids, stimulants, diuretics, and a bunch of other things, EPO, growth hormone. But any particular sport can pick and choose what they want to have us test for. If it's an Olympic sport, we test for everything. But baseball, they can use my lab, but they don't have to use the full menu. Same thing with football.
0: That list, or at least the original menu from the IOC, WADA, how many drugs are we talking about?
1: Oh, we're talking about a couple hundred now.
0: Well, obviously, in that group, there are some where athletes or they representatives are going to claim they need them. I I know there's an issue about therapeutic use and exemptions for that. Could you tell us a little bit about that concept and and how you've influenced or how you feel about that issue?
1: Yeah, it's a good concept. It's hard to make it work worldwide. The concept is that no athlete shall be denied the right to use a drug that's on the list if they have a legitimate disorder where they actually need it and so we've set up a system where you can apply for TUE and various specialists and doctors will review the case and make a decision. You can imagine however that we get requests that are quite outrageous. You'd be surprised how many young 20 year old men there are with total testosterone failure in the world. But we're very strict. There are a few, and they are allowed to take it, and we monitor them pretty closely.
0: If you've just tuned in, you're listening to a special series exploring sports medicine on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Don Catlin. We're talking about drugs and sports and some new challenges. Don, in the therapeutic Use exemption business, the TUE. I seem to recall that there are some drugs that many of us are prescribing every day, like beta blockers and diuretics. Are, th- are those on the list?
1: Yes and no, but we don't get many requests for TUEs for them because they're they're almost universally denied. Or the local physician in the country where the athlete resides knows that certain things they have to do. It they can take a drug holiday, for example, for a couple of days from a diuretic and they're not going to test positive beta2 agonists are a problem there are certain ones that are allowed we've done everything we can to try to make it possible for athletes to continue to, to take drugs that they need sometimes drugs that are used in low dose or aerosols can be used but not but not taken as a tablet there's a bunch of different ways that we we try to allow athletes to do what they need to do for colds and sore throats and things.
0: Do you think those drugs belong on that list? I mean, is there a significant performance-enhancing effect of of taking a diuretic or a beta blocker?
1: Well, I'm somewhat not like the rest of the people in the drugs and sport movement. I'm more flexible. Anabolic steroids, yes. Those need to be there, and you get caught with them, you know, throw them out. But some of the cold medications I would be more flexible about, but it's hard to do. Basically, the WADA and the IOC is built on the one-size-fits-all model. So it's a two-year ban, and if you get caught, that's just too bad. And they're trying to make that not quite so hard-nosed, and maybe they'll get there.
0: You've been in the business for a while. You've seen tests start out in what was probably relatively primitive and get better all the time. I noticed that carbon isotope ratio test is something that, when it first came out, was meant to get at people who were cheating in some fashion. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the test and what it it was intended to do, and do you use it now? Do you use it a lot?
1: Yeah, we did. Not only do we use it now, but it's growing in leaps and bounds. I started the work 10, 15 years ago. It was slow going because it's a new concept. And we had to build all the infrastructure. We had to get the instrument. It was really tough. But basically, the theory is fairly straightforward. And that is that when you make testosterone in in your body, it has a certain composition of carbon and hydrogen. And that's because that's the way you make it. But when a drug company makes and sells pharmaceutical testosterone, They use a different process. They start with a plant steroid. Actually, it typically comes from a yam. And the Lowly yam makes steroid precursors. And what the company does will take that steroid and they'll harvest it from carloads of yams. And then they'll clean it up and they'll get it in pure form. And then they do what's called a semi-synthesis, which is about a three- or a four-step synthesis, and bingo, they have testosterone. And that's a lot cheaper than to synthesize it from scratch, carbon by carbon. There's 20-some-odd carbon atoms, and you can't really do it that way. But the yam puts a certain signature into the molecule, which means that its carbon isotope ratio, carbon-12 to carbon-13, differs from natural carbon isotope ratio, and we can recognize that difference in the mass spectrometer. That's what we're measuring. So we can tell whether your urinary testosterone is natural or whether it comes from the low EM.
0: Is that instead of the TE ratio, or is it in addition to?
1: Well, we developed a test because there's a lot of ways to wiggle around the TE ratio. So now you don't even have to do the TE ratio. You can go straight to carbon isotope ratio. That's the one that nailed Floyd Landis from the Tour de France and other well-known athletes. It works not only for testosterone, but for other endogenous steroids. It has a lot of applications.
0: And it sounds like there was a long development process before it was ready for prime time, but it is being used now, right?
1: Yeah, It took a good 10 years to get it ready for prime time, and people just didn't know what I was talking about, and I wasn't very good at explaining it. And it just took time, but in the end, we needed a specialized mass spectrometer, different than the others, cost 350000 so it was slow to get the whole thing to go, but finally uh, around 2000, the WADA, World Anti-Doping Agency, uh, bought into the concept. We'd published papers others had published on it, and it grabbed hold, and it's been running ever since, and I think it's going to take over a lot of the testing but it's
0: expensive expensive now let's let's talk about costs for a second any idea like when the IOC said to you set up this lab and we did all this testing am I paying for that
1: the LAOC Los Angeles Olympic organizing committee paid for it they wrote a grant to UCLA and it turned out to be two million dollars which in 1982 was a whole lot of money and that's what we did it on in LAOC Got the money because they put together the Olympics and they touched, you know, companies and all sorts of sources to get the money. As you know, there are a lot of Olympic sponsors lined up to donate money to the organizing committee to put it on. It's big business.
0: Sounds like they're going to be uh, getting their money's worth, and sounds like Beijing will be uh, even bigger and better and more testing than ever before.
1: Yeah, it's always bigger. It's always better. We keep chasing around, trying to get better. We keep hoping there'll be no positives, but it hasn't worked out that way. We keep thinking we're going to get our arms around it and knock everything down, but the Olympics are such a big thing. It's so powerful, and if an athlete gets a gold medal... They can be on easy street for the rest of their life, and in lots of parts of the world, that's very important. So they're they're pushing, and they're getting pushed by their handlers, let's say, who are trying to make sure they they do win. So they're trying new approaches, new drugs, and everything under the sun, and it's been going on, and isn't over yet.
0: Well, Don, thanks for giving us some perspective on that. My Thanks go out to Dr. Don Catlin for being our guest. We've been discussing drugs in sports, some new challenges, and new testing. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and you've been listening to a special series exploring sports medicine on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at reachmd.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office.